Please take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and we're going to begin in a moment in verse 17. John, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus made many claims during his earthly life and ministry, claims that were both amazing and bold. For example, he claimed to be alive before Abraham was born. He claimed to have been sent from heaven. He claimed to fulfill Scripture. He claimed to have authority over all things, including angels, demons, even nature. He claimed to be the source of life. He claimed to be the only way to the Father. He claimed to be the Savior of the world and the light of the world. Added together, the claims that Jesus made were altogether different from the claims made by every other prominent man and woman in history. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they never made such claims. Moses never made such claims. David never made such claims. We would add there's no other religious leader in history that ever made these kind of claims. Only Jesus. Now, time is not going to allow us to deal with all of the claims that Jesus made, but we're going to look at some of them this morning. And last week, we read the story about Jesus healing a man who had been lame for 38 years. The fact that Jesus did this on the Sabbath day angered a lot of people, and many of them wanted to know who does Jesus think he is. And so in response to that, starting in verse 17, Jesus begins to answer that question by making some claims about himself. Jesus made extraordinary claims in these verses, claims that are either true or they are false, but there is no in-between. And it's vitally important that we understand these claims that Jesus made because the heart of the gospel is a right view of Jesus. You cannot understand the Bible without understanding the claims of Christ. You cannot know God personally without dealing with the claims of Christ. It all starts right here. Now, technically, this passage that we're looking at today is 31 verses long. We're only going to look at the first four. So let me warn you, we are going to swim in some deep waters doctrinally over these next few weeks as we make our way through the rest of John chapter 5. And I'll be the first to tell you, our minds will not be able to completely comprehend all of these great and glorious truths that we will discover in this passage. But this morning, I want us to start off by looking at three claims in particular that Jesus made about himself, especially in his relationship to God the Father. 
And I want you to notice, first of all, that he claimed to be equal with the Father. Yes, Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They're angry because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. We'll talk about the works of Jesus more in a moment. But notice when Jesus answered them, he said that God was his father. Now that Greek word for said means that he said continually. He said repeatedly. Apparently, this was something that Jesus said again and again, that God was his father. And let me remind you, this was a time where the Hebrews did not speak the name of God. When a scribe was copying the scriptures, he would wash his hands every single time he was going to write the name of God. And then Jesus comes and he does something that to them was absolutely unthinkable. He refers to God as his father. Now, the text makes it very clear how the people who heard that statement interpreted that statement. Verse 18 says, they sought to kill him all the more because he called God his father. And notice the end of that verse, making himself equal with God. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be equal with God, that he was in very essence God. Now, hear me carefully. There was not a controversy about whether or not Jesus claimed to be God. The controversy back then was whether or not his claim was true. And if those who heard Jesus make this statement, if they interpreted the statement that way, and the text clearly tells us that they did, if they interpreted Jesus' statement as meaning that he was God and he was not God, one would think that Jesus would clear up the misunderstanding. If I were to preach this sermon and somehow all of you left here today thinking that I claimed to be God, I would clear that up as quickly as possible. I would say, hold on a second. I said no such thing. I made no such claim. You misunderstood me. This is what I said. This is what I meant. But notice the Bible tells us that this is how they interpreted his statement. And Jesus did not clear up their misunderstanding because there was no misunderstanding for him to clear up. They understood Jesus correctly. They understood exactly what he meant. They hated him for it, and the Bible says they tried to, they sought to kill him for it. Now, this is not the only time Jesus made this claim. Repeatedly in the Gospel of John, Jesus takes that sacred name, I am, and he applies it to himself. Jesus claimed to have the prerogative to do things that only God can do. He claimed to be able to forgive 
sin and grant eternal life. He received worship. The apostles confirmed that Jesus made this claim. We've already seen in John 1.1 that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And four verses later, it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. All of the fullness of what is dwelling in Jesus? He tells us in the next chapter, Colossians 2.9, for in Him Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That means that all that God is, is in Christ. All of God's nature, all of God's attributes, all of God's wisdom. So if you want to know how God thinks or how God acts, look at Jesus, because the mind of Jesus is the mind of God, and the words of Jesus are the words of God, and the acts of Jesus are the acts of God. Now, this is why I tell anyone who is reading the Bible for the very first time, start with the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because the more you read about Jesus, the more you read his words, the more you read about his compassion and his miracles and his sermons and his parables, and of course, the more you read about Jesus as he lays down his life and as he rises again, you are beholding God himself. You are getting to know God. And when you understand exactly what Jesus is claiming about himself here, you know what? It forces you to make a decision. This claim that Jesus is making forces you to make a decision because if Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father, that means one of several things must be true. Back in the year 1859, there was a pastor by the name of John Duncan, and he described the options that are available to us in this statement. Notice this, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. Well, he was right. Almost 80 years later, another pastor, a man by the name of Watchman Nee, took this statement by John Duncan, and he summarized it in just three words. He said that this claim that Jesus makes here means that he must be one of three things. He is either a liar, or he is a lunatic, or he is Lord. If Jesus claimed to be God, one of these must be true. Either it is true, Jesus is who he claimed to be, or he was insane for believing that it was true, or he intentionally deceived people into believing something he knew was not true. 
But what you cannot say about Jesus was that he was a good man, just a good man, just a good moral teacher, because there is nothing good and there is nothing moral about basing all of your life and all of your teachings on something that you know to be a lie. Now, there are some people who would try to add a fourth option to this. There are some who would say, well, maybe Jesus was not a liar and maybe he was not a lunatic and and we don't believe that he's Lord, but maybe it's all just a legend. And these are those who claim that the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, he would have never claimed to be God. This was just a doctrine that came along centuries later. Well, there is a problem with that theory. The problem is we have literally tens of thousands of ancient New Testament manuscripts, all of which attest that Jesus, yes, made this claim. By the way, the oldest manuscript we have, a copy of the Gospel of John, was dated to 125 A.D., which would prove that the last of the four Gospels was written and translated and circulated and made its way all the way to Africa in the early second century, meaning the Gospel was written in what would have been the lifetime of the actual Apostle John. We have all of these manuscripts, tens of thousands, attesting that, yes, Jesus made this claim. He claimed to be God. We have exactly zero manuscripts in which Jesus ever attested to being anything else. These three options remain. He is either a liar or he is a lunatic or he is Lord. It was C.S. Lewis who probably said it best in his book, Mere Christianity. He wrote these words. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Ladies and gentlemen, it is because Jesus made this claim about himself this is why yes a person's eternal destiny is determined by how they respond to Jesus and what they do with Jesus every now and then somebody will ask the question they'll say why does it matter what I do with Jesus why is my eternal destiny determined by how I respond to Jesus I believe in God. I try to be a good person. Why does it matter whether I believe in the claims of Christ? Why does it matter whether Jesus is my Lord? It matters because, number one, even the demons believe in God and they tremble. 
It matters because, number two, you're not as good as you think you are. It matters, number three, because whatever you do with Jesus, that is what you have done with God because He is God. Because Jesus is equal with the Father, that means when you judge Jesus, you are judging God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. To hate Jesus is to hate God. Whatever you make of Jesus, that's what you have made of God. And to not believe in the claims of Christ is to make God a liar. The ramifications for this claim of Christ are absolutely enormous. And yes, Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father. That's not the only claim that He makes in this short passage. He also claimed to be at work with the Father. He claimed to be at work with the Father. Remember, Jesus was accused of working on the Sabbath. So in verse 17, He said, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. In other words, there's never a time when God is not working. Every day of the week, including the Sabbath, the sun rises. Every day of the week, it's raining somewhere. Who does that? God does that because God is always working. In fact, if God were to ever stop working, you know what would happen? The universe would stop existing. Somebody will say, but pastor, what about God resting on the seventh day? And yes, in the creation story, God did indeed rest on the seventh day, but he did not rest because he was tired. He rested to sanctify that day, to set an example for us to follow. He rested in order to point us to that future rest, that spiritual rest that we have in Christ. And even though he rested from the work of creation, do you understand God never rests from his work of providing for his children? He never rests from his work of protecting us. Someone once said, the throne of God is not a lounge chair. God is always working. And that means he's always working around us. He's always at work in our lives. He's working to fulfill his purposes for us. He is always working to draw us closer to himself. He's always working in order to make us more like Christ. Jesus said, my father has been working and I have been working. And in the Greek, there's emphasis on I. Jesus said, I am working as well. What was true about the Father always working was true about the Son always working. And he explains why this is true in verse 19. Verse 19 says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, in the Greek, Amen, Amen, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Verse 19 is kind of like two sides of the same coin. There's a negative statement, and then there's a positive statement. 
Jesus said, the son can do nothing by himself. Now, does this mean that there was some kind of defect in Jesus? Was Jesus admitting that he didn't have the the power to do that which he willed? No, because the very next verse says, whatever he sees the father do, he does. In other words, because Jesus is God, what he cannot do is do anything independently of God. Now, I'm going to use an analogy. It is a very imperfect analogy, as all analogies are when we're talking about God. But let me explain it this way. When you get up in the morning and when you look into the mirror, you absolutely know that whatever you do, that person in the mirror, that man or woman, is going to do as well. You know that if you raise your right arm, he or she is going to raise his right arm. If you shave, he's going to shave. If you sneeze, he or she will sneeze. Why? Because you are the person in the mirror. And it is inconceivable that you would do one thing and the person in the mirror would do something else. And if you get up and that person in the mirror is doing something else, may I recommend you get medical care immediately. (laughs) Now, we understand that God is one God in three persons. But listen, Jesus is so united with his Father. It is inconceivable that Jesus would do anything independently of the Father, and therefore, whatever the Father does, the Son does as well. Did the Father create the universe? So did the Son. Does the Father sustain the universe? So does the Son. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus sustains all things from the farthest galaxy to the smallest atom. The Bible says that Jesus sustains it all. Now, that ought to encourage you because if Jesus can sustain the universe, that means he can also sustain you when everything is falling apart in your life around you. This is good news. And notice that Jesus said at the end of verse 19 that what the Father does, he does in like manner. Jesus not only does exactly what the Father is doing, he does it in the same way. It's not like God the Father has one way of doing things, but God the Son has a completely different way of doing things. No, the Father and the Son work together in like manner at all times. Jesus is always at work. He's always working, growing his kingdom. He's always working, building his church. He's always working, saving whosoever believes on him, whosoever shall call upon his name. Jesus claimed to be at work with the Father. Now, there's one more claim that I want us to talk about in our text. Jesus claimed to be loved by the Father. He claimed to be loved. He claimed to have a special 
kind of love with his father. Look at verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Jesus said the Father loves the Son. Now that word for love that appears in verse 20, guess what? It's not the word that you probably think that it is. Because if you've been studying the Bible any amount of time, you probably know that most of the time, almost always, when the Bible describes God's love, it's talking about agape love. That's the Greek word, agape love. It is sacrificial love. This is the love of a man who sacrifices himself for his wife and for his children. This is the love of a soldier who sacrifices himself for his country. And yes, many times in Scripture, God's love is described in this way, that agape love. That's what we see in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But isn't it interesting, in verse 20, when Jesus says the Father loves the Son, in this case, he uses a different word for love. In this case, it's not agape love. It is phileo love, which is that personal love between friends, friends who delight in sharing everything with each other. This is why Jesus said, the Father loves the Father and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Because God the Father loves God the Son, he doesn't keep any secrets from him. And it's because the Father loves the Son that he will show Jesus greater works. And we'll talk next week about what those greater works are. But I love what John MacArthur said about verse 20. He said, the heart of redemption is the Father's love for the Son. The heart of redemption is the Father's love for the Son. Not the Father's love for us, mind you. The Father's love for the Son. This is a theme that we see repeatedly in the Bible this love that God the Father has for God the Son and this love that God the Son has for God the Father. When Jesus was baptized, you remember the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, Jesus said, or God the Father said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And we see this theme of God's love for himself, this triune love, again and again, especially in the Gospel of John. We've already looked at John 5.20. Listen to what it says in John 3.35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 14.31. But that the world may know that I love the Father... And as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. John 15, 9. As the Father loved me, 
I also have loved you. Abide in my love. John 17, 24, Jesus praying to, speaking to his Father. Notice he says at the end of that verse, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. It occurred to me as I was looking at these different verses about the love for the Father and the Son and the love of the Son for the Father, and as I was preparing this message, it occurred to me that we do talk a lot about God's love, and you know what? We sing a lot about God's love as well. But it occurred to me that almost all of the songs that we sing about God's love are all about God's love for us. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Oh, love that will not let me go. Jesus loves me. Love lifted me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Hey, these are great songs. We're not going to stop singing them. We should sing about and talk about and celebrate God's love for us. My only point is, we sing so much about God's love for us. Don't you think when we get to heaven, we're going to sing some songs about the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father? And who knows, maybe one of you here will write such a song and we can start singing it before we get to heaven. Wouldn't that be nice? But this love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father, it has, again, so many implications for our lives. It has practical implications for our lives. For example, sometimes a tragedy will happen. Something terrible will take place. And someone will ask the question, does God really love me? Because if God loved me, why would he allow blank? to happen. Those of you who know my testimony, you know that was my story. I said, if God loved me, why would he allow my mother to be murdered? Now, God does love you because Calvary proves that God loves you. But listen to me carefully. It's not about you. Everything that happens in this world around us, everything that happens in our lives is somehow traceable to, it goes back to, the love that God the Father has for God the Son and the love that God the Son has for God the Father. And we would say as well, the love of the Holy Spirit for the Father and the Son and vice versa. And no, we will never understand the depth of the love that exists within the Trinity. But let me tell you what is the greatest thing about all of this. The greatest part of this is that we get to be a part. We get to be a part. Jesus said in the very next chapter in John 6, and he said it again in John 17, he refers to believers as those whom the Father has given me. Now you understand it is possible to give without loving. It is not possible to love 
without giving. And so God the Father gives us to the Son because He loves the Son. And then Jesus said in John 10, because the Father loves me, I lay down my life. He went to the cross and he died for our sins, not just because God loves us, but Jesus said, I do it because he loves me and I love him. God the Father sent God the Son into the world because he loves the Son and would give to him a bride. That's us, the redeemed, the bride of Christ. So what does Jesus do? He takes that gift of love from the Father and he saves us and he redeems us and he sanctifies us so that he could give us back to the Father so that forever and ever we might worship and adore him. Why? Because the Son loves the Father back. Do you realize we are just caught up in this great, big, giant, eternal love relationship between the Father and the Son. And the amazing thing, as I said, is that we even get to be a part. Romans 5.5 5 says, this love, God pours it into our hearts by His Spirit when we are saved. This great, big, eternal, everlasting love between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father, He puts in you and in me so as much as humanly possible, we can then share that love with one another and with this world. Jesus made some amazing claims about Himself, did He not? Yes, He claimed to be equal with the Father. And yes, He claimed to be at work with the Father. And He claimed to be loved by the Father. And the question for us all here this morning is, how are we going to respond to these claims? As I said, the claims that Jesus made were unlike the claims of anyone else in all of history. These claims of Christ and the ones that we will look at in the weeks ahead force us to a decision. What will we do how will we respond? Will we accept him or will we reject him? Will we call him a liar or a lunatic or will we fall down and call him Lord? I pray that's your response this morning. Join me as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these amazing truths which we have read in your word this morning. And we realize that we haven't even scratched the surface. That there is so much more even to these four verses that we've studied this morning. But we thank you. God, I pray that we would have in us a holy enthusiasm as we consider such things. The knowledge that Jesus is equal with the Father and working with the Father and loved by the Father, the, the fact that we get to be part of that, the fact that we could be gifts of love from the Father to the Son and gifts of love from the Son back to the Father. God, I pray that that would just fill us with a sense of amazement, a sense of awe, and a sense of wonder that we would leave here today declaring, yes, how great is our God.
You are so much bigger and greater than we could ever imagine. And we see that these claims that Jesus made force us into a decision. We have to decide how we will respond to them. And so I pray that for every person here, hearing my voice in this room or online, I pray that their response to the claims of Christ would be to receive Him and believe on Him and confess Him as Lord. And Father, I pray that You would help each one here to know exactly how we should apply these wonderful, great, deep truths to our lives this morning so that we would not just be hearers of Your Word, but doers as well. And we'll give You the thanks and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.